Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands and consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. In this episode, I talk to Professor Dr. Jan Benedict Steenkamp, author, distinguished scholar, and one of the world's leading experts in the consumer packaged goods industry. I was lucky enough to take Professor Steenkamp's global marketing, as well as his consumer behaviour class, as part of my MSc in marketing in 1999. His deep understanding of the leading consumer packaged goods companies and the industry they play in, along with his infectious energy and enthusiasm, still makes him one of my favourite people to learn from. Jan Benedict is one of the most cited marketing scholars globally, is the author of four books including Global Brand Strategy, Private Label Strategy and, most recently, Retail Disruptors. He's also a consultant to many of the largest consumer packaged goods companies in the world. Here's our interview earlier this week, where we discuss what's worrying large consumer packaged goods companies about driving organic growth and what they can learn from insurgent brands. Jan Benedict, hello and welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's my honor to be on the show and thank you for this wonderful introduction. So it's been exactly 20 years since you were my professor of global marketing and, and also of consumer behavior during the Master of Science in Marketing in the Business School in, in the University of Leuven in Belgium. And I think you know that it was you who inspired me to choose the career path I've taken. You've spent much of your career working with some of the largest consumer goods package companies in the world, advising them on the issues that they're faced with and the context that they play in. Recently, I've heard you speaking and read your writing about the difficulty that large CPG companies are having in finding and driving organic growth. Tell our listeners, what is worrying these companies about trying to drive organic growth? Well, the companies have had a couple of, let's say, attacks over the years. One area which kind of stunted organic growth for a long time uh, was the growth in private labels in, in Europe and, and also in other parts of the world, uh, US, Australia, and so on. Now, in a number of markets, total private labels have plateaued a little. I mean, it depends. In the US, it's still growing more. A second wave is now rolling over the landscape, and that is the rise of hard discounters, something that most recently we have seen in Australia and in the UK. And they are now also starting to make inroads in the US. So essentially, if we see a shift from national brands to private labels and to hard discounters, that itself is not good for them, especially because these are fairly mature uh, markets. But there is another thing coming on is that within the whole set and market share of the national brands, we see a shift from the traditional large leading national brands of the large uh, CPG companies towards smaller, local, and authentic brands. And, and this is something that is really very, very new. And actually, I would also say fairly unexpected. It's funny, when I saw you speaking in London at the end of last year at the Museum of Brands, it really surprised me to hear that actually the growth that these smaller companies are creating is actually significant. I imagined that we talked about them a lot in the industry because we see them a lot and they're very media friendly and they're they're almost like brand celebrities. But I didn't expect that the actual figures, the value that they were creating was significant. Uh, that is true. Now, I do think that those brands would have a much harder time uh, growing so fast if it were not for the social media. Uh, just from a very simple point of view, they don't have the media budgets 
of the large bankers, good companies. So even if you have a good brand, I mean, how do people get to know about it? So the social media, where you get a lot of also unpaid, essentially, commercial exposure, does help a lot. But there is another part is going on, is that people have become, rightly or wrongly, more hesitant, if not suspicious, of large brands. They often believe that they are not really that authentic anymore, that the the taste is kind of watered down to appeal to the multitudes. And actually, frankly, a lot of the innovation activity is not taking place anymore in these large companies, bizarrely enough, but in these small entrepreneurial ones. So you have innovation, you have a shift towards more authenticity and and an increased distrust of large brands, at least amongst sizable group of people. And then you have social media to get the message across. And that creates a perfect storm that is now currently blowing over the CPG scale. And are the bigger companies in consumer goods industries actually concerned about these smaller brands that are driving growth? I mean, I know some of them are really driving significant growth. If you take Chobani, for example, or Dollar Shave Club or Halo Top, we're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in some cases. But, you know, are the are the Unilevers, the Proctors, the Crafts? I mean, you know, I'm not asking you to mention any names in particular, but are these guys worried about, about these smaller brands? Uh, yes, they're very worried about it. And uh, that's not just my opinion. Um, let me just give you two pieces of evidence. There was a proxy fight involving Procter & Gamble and uh, Trium and with uh, Nelson Peltz. And essentially, the proxy fight was because Trion said that Procter & Gamble is not growing enough. And in their white paper, they identified it had to do, they don't invest enough in smaller brands, in in new emerging trends, and they're essentially losing the ball. Now, that is the most expensive proxy fight ever fought. And here we are talking about, uh, that was 2017. Well, Procter & Gamble narrowly won, but actually it was a purest victory, so... They had to incorporate their ideas and pelts on the board. Then we have Unilever, one of the other giants, and I'm quoting now from public information, so there is not any breach of confidentiality or anything like that going on, where the CFO acknowledged last year that they were actually far too late when it came to seeing the trend that was opened up by Halo Top in the ice cream market, and he acknowledged we were really far too slow. So these are just some, there are are a lot of other instances. Essentially, these large companies are very concerned about that because they see it also, but it took them a long time to figure it out. And Kraft Heinz is one of the slowest ones to to figure it out. And uh, honestly, they have recently experienced a near meltdown and, and they have now, the CEO has been replaced by another person and they are now trying to reinvigorate the company. So yes, talking about some really large companies from food, you know, personal care, etc. And they feel the pressure. And what is it that makes it difficult for these larger CPG companies to move more quickly than they move in relation to, say, let's take, for example, acquiring one of these companies. And I know that's kind of jumping to solutions, but I was just looking earlier at an article that talked about the fact that Unilever had acquired Dollar Shave Club in, I think, 2016. And now Dollar Shave Club is already seeing less growth than did in the past. And I'm sure, you know, as its company life cycle, it's going up that curve and it's starting to slow down a little bit. Why didn't 
someone like Unilever move more quickly? What what takes them so long? What stops them from moving more quickly? Yeah, essentially you raise two different points. Why is it that these large companies do not move more quickly when it comes to coming up with their own innovations? And a second, actually really complex point is, why might it be the case that some of these smaller companies, if they are acquired by a large company, perhaps they lose some of their edge? So these are two different things. Um, but let's or maybe maybe they were, you know, it could be two things. They were acquired at a point when it was going to slow down anyway, because you have Harry's and you have Gillette already in that market when Dollar Shave Club, you know, 10 years ago or seven years ago was the only one. So there's there's all sorts of things at play in terms of losing time if you don't move quickly enough. That is correct. And there are situations in which, uh, let's say, a rebellious brand is being acquired by a large company and does really very well afterwards. Ben & Jerry's is an example of, of a brand that was, let's say, that was 20 years ago, an up-and-coming, small, local, authentic brand that has been acquired by Unilever, done very well. On the other hand, uh, say, Cashy had been acquired by, um, I believe, Kellogg's, and afterwards has not done uh, so well. And so I do believe that there are a lot of different situations. It may be that the market is getting saturated, but I think there is something deeper there which these large CPG companies need to take into account. And, and that is if you acquire, let's say, a young entrepreneurial company, and if you embed it within your, your own corporate culture, I do believe, to be honest, that the corporate culture of large CPG companies more resembles, say, the, the corporate culture of a university, meaning strong bureaucracy, many rules and procedures. Some of them make a heck of a lot of sense, but they don't really help to essentially fire the innovators, the animal spirits that you would find with a lot of entrepreneurial companies. They are not filling out forms. They are looking for opportunities. They have their skin in the game is essentially it's everything that they have. Now, everybody that's in such a situation is going to take more risk, is going to be more innovative. And that is something that if these big companies, they acquire a smaller brand, they buy it for strong future growth because the acquisition prices is very high often. So they have to find a balance between integrating it in some respect because the big company have the channel access. They have obviously a lot of brand building and marketing expertise. Let's not forget that. But it also comes with bureaucracy, with filling out forms, with endless committee meetings. And those committee meetings at the company are as useless as the committee meetings that I'm here at the university. Most <laughs> of the time is a complete waste of time. And that you don't find in a small company. So there is something to have a small company as part of a large company, but still separate. How to do that? That is difficult because what you find in a large company, there are a lot of people that understand that, but there are also a lot of people that have a more of a bureaucratic mindset and that want to, you know, make procedures the same, etc. And that doesn't work. So essentially, there is nothing in principle wrong with a large company. But in practice, there are very few, very few large companies that have the entrepreneurial spirit and that foster and reward innovation in its managers, 
like they had at the beginning. You know, Coca-Cola and Procter Gamble did not start out as a bureaucracy. They started out as, as entrepreneurs of the first rank. And these young companies do that as well. Now, there is another thing is these big companies like Nestle, Unilever, P&G and others, they spend billions of dollars on R&D. And still they cannot come up with a halo top, which honestly is not, my, my son is an investment analyst. He said, it's not exactly rocket science, you know, halo top. You know, it's, it's a ice cream, you know, with a sugar alcohol, so less sugar and more protein. And to be honest, it's not that difficult. So why, for example, let's take that example. Why is it that Unilever or Nestle, two of the biggest players in ice cream, did not come up with it? Now, it's difficult to answer that question, but I do believe that what you have is in these companies, it's a very natural thing. In the R&D context, you often will tweak around the edges as opposed to doing something completely different. And, and that is a group dynamic. If you are together working on margarine, say, then you may not really, really think about working on something that can either replace margarine or that is not within the margarine boundaries. And, and I think that's a reason why consultants are so popular. Not because the company doesn't know. They know their own markets the best. But the consultant essentially asks the question, why do you do that? What about this? And often you say, yeah, actually, I never thought about it. And that is not only for companies. That's the same at universities. That's the same at NGOs, etc. It is a kind of a group think. Entrepreneurs don't have that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point you make. There's been a couple of um, launches on the market recently that I've seen or activity that I've heard about that have really disappointed me. And some of them, for example, and I, you know, I can speak about my old alma mater because I used to work there. But one of them is a new cereal bar launch by Nestle. It, it's a range of bars called Oh Yes, I think. And the brand and the product range looks just like a cross between the Naked Bar brand and Kind Bars, depending on which variant you look at. And when I saw it for the first time the other day, I thought, why are they just launching something like somebody else? And why are they launching it in such a way that's less appealing than either of the other two original brands? It just came across to me that their brand proposition was sort of watered down, less cool, less authentic version of either naked or kind. And I just wondered, who is sitting around a table in these big companies thinking that this is, is a good idea? It just didn't make sense to me. And it was a bit like hearing recently that a number of local marketing teams within big consumer goods companies have set up internal incubators where they're looking at their portfolios around the world, okay, their own portfolios of brands around the world, and they're saying, okay, uh, brand X in Australia or Japan isn't known in the UK or France, so we can take it and we can repurpose it and we can make it look authentic and we can use a brand from within our portfolio and launch it as an authentic brand in Germany. Now, surely a big consumer goods packaged food company that prides itself on being a world-class marketing center of excellence understands that you can't invent an authentic brand out of something that already exists somewhere else and that is you know, probably a mass-produced brand in another country. And, and I just wonder, what's going on that that these guys are thinking this way? I don't really understand. Can you, what's your view? I, I, let's say, I think there is a possibility for also a large company to do that because their brand in Australia might be really an authentic brand. So it could be a brand that, that draws from local Australian values. That is essentially, that is really an authentic brand. Sure. And perhaps that is a brand that can also be carried in, in Germany or, or in the UK. But authenticity is not the same as 
I take a brand from another country that is not known in my country, say the UK or Germany, and there I kind of repackage it as an authentic brand. Then, because, And that's a little bit, I believe, that you are referring to, because in such a situation, perhaps the manager doesn't fully understand what authenticity means. Authenticity is not the same as small. Authenticity has to do with a story behind the brand, that the brand is is true to its its values, that there are corporate and brand values associated that go beyond, you know, profit and, and margins, that the brand is willing to not do certain things because it would not square with their brand values. That that and, and that can be different things. You know, you could say, what could they not do? Well, depends on, on what basis the authenticity is, is based. But I do believe that if you grow up in a world of, of mac and cheese, of, of Omo uh, and of, of Gillette, those are power brands, but they are not built on authenticity. They carry a lot about the company and it requires I think a different kind of person. But there is one other thing, Fiona, which I'm a little worried about, and that is um, we have had this craze in the last few years of uh, ZBB, zero-based budgeting, which I believe is a terrible idea. There is a big difference, by the way, between cutting unnecessary costs and everything based on essentially the uh, uh, return on investment. You have to justify every cost because what would you get? you get actually that a lot of the things which, for example, make an authentic brand in the short run are all about cost. So, oh, you can cut corners here or there a little bit. And actually, the short-term return on investment on that is is very high. Can you just explain to our listeners what, what this is, zero-based budgeting, and where where is it happening? Where are you seeing it happening? Yeah, zero-based budgeting is, is a craze that has gone over it's essentially very strongly associated with um, investment outfit uh, 3G, but it's also other ones. Zero-based budgeting is that every year or every quarter, you start in terms of budgeting your uh, expenses from zero, from scratch. So what the normal situation is, is that, okay, let's look at the budget, say the advertising budget of last year. Uh, or last quarter, but let's make it simple, last year. Okay, what am I going to do this year? Well, you know, advertising expenses have gone up 3%. Uh, let's take a budget that is 3% higher than last year. That was the normal situation. And there was some waste in there. There is no doubt. Zero-based budgeting is, okay, I spent uh, $10 million on brand X last year. Okay, this year we start with zero dollars. You have to motivate why we need $10 million, why not $9 million, or, or why $11 million. You have to, to motivate that. Now, so that means that you have to have hard evidence on return on investment. Every expense has to be motivated every year. Now, in theory, it sounds kind of good, but that is because the moment that finance guys run a brand, run for the exit. I'm very clear about that. I have no confidence in finance guys running brands. And by the way, my major in my master's study was finance. So it's not that I, I love finance. My son is in finance. It is just when it comes to brand building, to be honest, 
many of the brand building expenses, they can be high and they cannot be justified in the short run. Right. It takes a long time to build awareness, to build consideration, these kind of so-called softer concepts. And that is, okay, what do you find? You find a lot of cost cutting in R&D, in advertising, in market research, in, in a number of other things that are important for brand building. But realistically, you can never say that if I spend 5 million this quarter, that my ROI on that 5 million is going to meet my, my target benchmark. It's just not, not possible. And therefore, what we have seen over the years is a gradual erosion of the brand strengths, the brand value of companies that use zero-based budgeting. You know, Anheuser-Busch uses it, Kraft Heinz uses it, a number of other companies use it because then they can show to the financial market, okay, you know, we have this kind of margin, also far so good. Now, as I now recently teach my, my students, okay, if you are running into the CFO who is asking, okay, you know, how can you justify these expenses in your brand? I said, Remember Kraft Heinz. And then I tell them, okay, what is it? Uh, you know, what is it a month or so ago? Kraft Heinz had to write off $15 billion on the value of its brands. Its share price tanked 27% because they had for the first time to acknowledge that actually the brand value, and, and they know the brand value because it was there was a merger going on. So then you have to value it for financial purposes is far too high. It, it, it doesn't play out anymore. And um, so even Warren Buffett now says, we have paid too much. We pay too much in these kind of companies. We have valued the brands too much. And why is that? Because they didn't invest in it. Now, two days later, Edeka, the largest retailer in Germany, has taken all the Kraft Heinz brands off its shelves. And why was that? Kraft Heinz wanted to increase the prices. Edeka said no. Tension came on. And Edeka said, we don't really need your brands. You don't invest in your brands. And we don't see any evidence that consumers want your brands. Get the hell out of here. Now, I'm talking about Kraft Heinz as an example. Other companies have also done it, but Kraft Heinz is essentially one of the standard bearers of this. And as I predicted already on LinkedIn uh, a long time ago, in the short run, it was so good. In the long run, it is going to kill the brands and it is extremely difficult to rebuild the brand once it is sliding and it is sad because these were very strong brands with extremely strong consumer following and equity so here we have something that is really self-inflicted so what can these big incumbent brands do to make their brands more relevant to today's consumer because the context and the benchmark is, is changing for today's consumer isn't it they're seeing these smaller more authentic brands that are widely available and I know certainly for for many of us the larger incumbent brands just seem less interesting or less compelling what, what can they do I think uh, they can do a couple of things but what works or not does also depend a bit on on the industry so for example when it comes to food their issues about authenticity and local are a little more important than when it comes to, say, detergents. Now, that doesn't mean that there is not an opportunity in detergents as well, but let's face it, when it comes to detergent, the technical qualities of the washing powder is just very important. So what can these companies do? One of the things that they have to do is 
at least when we talk about their own big brands, is they have to invest significantly more money in research and development. And they can either do that by trying to do it all themselves, or they can do more crowdsourcing in which you essentially share some of your knowledge with the crowd to do that. And there is a big interest in, in, in crowdsourcing as well. I also believe that they, in coming up with innovations, there are important innovations. Think about organic. Think about you know, uh, see, uh, corporate social responsibilities, think about environmental issues. You could have a version of Tide or Omo or Persil if you want to keep it under the same brand name. And there are good reasons for that. That would be an organic version. We have seven, seven generation, which is very much playing the environmental card. That's perfect. I think they are acquired by Unilever, but I, I may be wrong there. Is this a detergent brand in the yes, US? Detergent, yeah. And, and um, a detergent in cleaning, and, and they have a number of different things. They're essentially the big thing is in terms of the environment and so on. Why not take as a big company, look at the trends in the market and see whether you can sub-brand your big brands to capture that segment to that needs that emerges among consumers. And if you think about it, if you have Tide and you would have, you know, Tide Organic or whatever, Tide still stands for great quality. So it may be a, it may be a really good strategy as opposed to coming up with an entirely new brand. Now, when it comes to food, I think there it's going to be a bit more challenging but there is possible to take, you know, a Kraft mac and cheese. There are a lot of varieties, and let's say, that are a lot better. I mean, in terms of the processed cheese, I mean, before I came to the U.S., I didn't understand, never heard of processed cheese, and I only knew what is called here natural cheese, which honestly, I didn't even know that there was something else than that. Sure. There are many varieties that are a lot healthier that can be made. The longer you wait, the less easy it is going to be. I'm sure the amount of R&D and consumer research these companies already do is showing them that those are the trends and that those are their options. But for some reason, they're not choosing those routes. Well, I'm not sure whether they know that these are the trends, if only because they have been caught flat-footed quite a bit in recent years to know that something is a trend and to understand the deep current that is underlying that trend and where the market is moving, that's still a little different. Okay. And yeah, why they don't do it, or at least some of them don't do it, there, there, there is some, some movement there, why it takes so long. I think one of the challenges that these companies do have and an entrepreneur doesn't have that is they may be afraid that if you launch that at least under an existing brand name that it weakens the equity of the mother brand. Say, for example, if you would have, you know, tight, you know, great for the environment, that it might weaken, okay, is the regular tight then bad for the environment? Sure, and that's understandable, right? It is, that's absolutely understandable. It is absolutely understandable that people are afraid to cannibalize because it can cannibalize on their own sales, it can undermine it. I tell uh, managers if they, they say that, and, and I say, yeah, you're right. 
And then I say, okay, what, what do you think is riskier? To risk a brand or to risk a world empire? Well, no, yeah, to risk a world empire is, is very different than to risk a brand. I said, well, actually, Britain risked its world empire when it introduced a completely new product that made everything else where it had the lead obsolete in one sweep. Huh? I said that was when Admiral Jackie Fisher introduced His Majesty's Dreadnought in 1906. Then I explained to it with that new battleship, the complete overwhelming lead of Britain in battleships on which his whole empire rested was swept away. I said he did it because he knew that if he would not do it, somebody else would do it and you better be the first mover regardless of the cost because then you can retain the initiative. And I tell that as an example to say, yes, it is risky. But honestly, what other choice is there? Uh, you are not being paid only to minimize risk because ultimately it's going to get at you anyway. And said, if Fisher can do it with the British Empire, can't you do it with your company? <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I, I think I could talk to you all day about this subject. We've covered a, an awful lot of really interesting points here today. If you had to come up with, you know, three things that the larger CPG companies with incumbent brands should do differently, what would they be? That's a good question. It's also a challenging question. I would say the first thing is to give brands back to brand managers rather than to financial types. If I were the leadership of such a company, I don't say that lightly, I would essentially say to the financial markets, F and a couple of stars off. And Paul Pullman is a person that has done that, uh, at least to a significant extent, because most financial analysts and markets do not understand much about brands. They look at spreadsheets and brands is what these companies make. So essentially give brands back to brand managers and essentially forget about the financial markets. And I know all the arguments against it. So I'm not, I'm aware of it at some point, you know, okay, it's too bad, my friends. This is what you have to do. The second aspect which I believe is important in the company, is to foster organizational culture that encourages risk-taking as opposed to meeting the quarterly targets. I understand that quarterly targets are important, but it fosters short-term behavior. If risk-taking, many companies do not foster risk-taking. They say, you know, we want innovative people, we want entrepreneurial people, blah, 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 etc. And who rises to the top? That is what people, they don't look at what, what, what people say. They look at what is happening in the, in the company. I believe that is a very important other aspect that people can experiment and that they are not uh, killed or the, as the Germans we say, kaltgestellt. I think it says it a lot better because they have failure. Many entrepreneurs fail, but you see there the going on. So it, I think it requires a different mindset when it comes to organizational culture. And I would say a third aspect is large, big brands are not at all bad. Many people love them, but we see a trend away from them. But much of it, not all, but much of it is self-inflicted because of lack of entrepreneurship, lack of authenticity, losing essentially some of the core brand values, trying to placate more and more people. As, as, as a colleague of mine one time said, what is the measure of really strong brands? 
that there are some people that really hate the brand. Uh-huh. Because then the brand stands for something. A really strong brand is not a brand that is loved by everybody because an idea that is loved by everybody, I mean, that's Mother Teresa. Yeah, we do, and she's a saint. You know, most managers, including I, and I'm not a saint. So let's forget about that. Some people have to hate you because that means that you that you do something right. Jan Benedict, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real honor to have you and to hear all of your views. Thank you so much. Well, it was an honor and I wish you lots of success with this show. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.